You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 11 today. Romans chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. We are in this section of Romans. It's of Romans 9, 10, and 11. They are difficult and, and challenging and and uh, I remind you, as we've said several times already, that these are, are not just theoretical ivory tower kind of issues with, with, uh, with Paul and the congregation there at Rome. There were many Jews living in Rome at this particular time, but only a few of them believed. And for Paul, this was uh, heartbreaking. It was the pattern of many of the missionary journeys that he went on, his own kinsmen rejecting Christ. And uh, even in his own congregation, this own congregation here in Rome, uh, it was creating all kinds of questions for them. Uh, has God's word of promise to the Jews in the Old Testament, the Israelites, has it somehow failed? And so in chapter 9, Paul, uh, he's described Israel there as both uniquely privileged by God, blessed by God, and yet they're entrenched in unbelief. Um, God had covenanted with Israel, but the Jews were stumbling over Christ. And uh, this was a result, chapter 9, of God's purpose of election, Paul explains, but also it was a result of Israel's hard and unbelieving heart. And so we think of that picture at the end of chapter 10 that we talked about last week, chapter 10, verse 21, God, He's standing there all day long holding out His hands an invitation, right? Holding out his hands to a disobedient, unbelieving, contrary people, inviting them to believe. And at some point, you were perhaps wondering, well, how long is God going to strive with these, these folks, these unbelieving Jews? Might he give up on them and move on? Perhaps that's what Paul is thinking about when he writes in Romans 11.1. 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply? To him, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the sweet gospel message that we've just sang, that Jesus paid it all. 
Lord, what rest and what rejoicing in that we have today, those of us who know him. And uh, we thank you for, again, this privilege of being able to open your word, hold it in our laps, receive it into our hearts. We pray for your help in doing that today. I ask, Lord, that you would use me as your servant. I, I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, these chapters here in Romans 9, 10, and 11 are certainly challenging and in some ways controversial. In, in chapter 9, it was the doctrine of election that is difficult. Um, chapter 11, uh, it, it's a bit of eschatology. It's a bit of study of the end times, um, whether you're a, a pre-millennial or a post-millennial or, or sometimes a pan-millennial like I am, that it's all going to pan out one way or the other. Um, you, there's lots of different angles about this because, because much of the debate of those different end-time positions is what's going to happen to Israel, to ethnic Israel in the future. What's going to happen to them? What's the future of Israel? And in many ways, chapter 11, that, that's, that, that's Paul's, uh, this is Paul's most complete teaching on that subject um, of, of what is the future for them. We're just touching on it today, but in the next few verses, next couple of weeks or so, um, it'll become even, even more uh, prevalent and, and relevant. So some of you were alive, uh, perhaps, when Israel was uh, reconstituted as a nation in, in 1948. Um, others of you... Uh, perhaps during the Six-Day War of the 1960s. R.C. Sproul writes this, When the Six-Day War occurred in the 1960s and Jerusalem was recaptured by the Israelis, theologians were reading the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. In fact, since the reconstitution of the Jewish state of Israel in 1948, there's been a strong concentration of interest as to whether we're living in the last generation. Are we living in the end times, Sproul asks. And Romans 11 is not going to answer all those questions, but it does answer some. And, and so we approach it again, knowing this is a piece of the puzzle that fits a lot of other pieces out there, and, and, we, do, and we want to look at these things with, with humility and, 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 and kind of a spirit of trepidation because they're not easy to understand. Uh, there's some real difficulties here in, in chapter 11 that we're going to encounter. Well, when we finished chapter 10 last week, as I mentioned, Paul, that you see him there, verse 21, picturing God holding out his hands, inviting Israel into his salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. But Israel, he says, he describes them there as both being disobedient and contrary, continuing in their own unbelief. And it raises the big issue that Paul has been dealing with in these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. Will the Jews turn their backs uh, forever on God. If, if they turn their backs forever, what happens to the promises of God to them going all the way back to Abraham? Can, can God do what he promised if Israel doesn't respond? And so there's lots of these questions. And, and chapter 11 begins kind of with the same issue that Paul raised back in chapter 9, verse 6, as though God's word of promise is it, it is not, he says, as though God's word of promise has failed. It's essentially the same thing he's asking here in verse 1. Has God rejected his people? Has he rejected them? 
And as Paul has been doing throughout, he answers the question, he gives us an answer, and then he gives us an explanation of it, and then he supports it with Scripture. Um, We've seen him do that multiple times, and we'll see that pattern this morning. First of all, Paul says God has not rejected his people. He answers his own question, doesn't he? By no means. Again, the strongest negative possible in the Greek language. God forbid. By no means. Not today, not, not tomorrow, not ever. For, he says, for, he says, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Well, Paul's preliminary proof uh, of saying that God has not rejected his people is himself, isn't it? He says, he saved me, right? I myself am an Israelite, Paul says. How can we know that God hasn't rejected his people, the Israelites? Paul says, well, look at me. Look at me. He calls himself an Israelite. He, he says he's a descendant of Abraham. He, he, he even lists his tribe a member of the tribe of Benjamin, he says. Benjamin was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was out of the tribe of Benjamin that came the first king in Israel's history. Do you remember what his name was? Anyone? Saul, right? And Paul's name before he was Paul was, was, was Saul. He was named after perhaps Saul in the Old Testament. Saul of Tarsus is now Paul. And so Paul is laying down his credentials because, and he's basically saying, look, no one is more, no one is more Jew than I am. No one is more rooted and grounded in Judaism than, than Paul. And, and he was so entrenched in Judaism, so entrenched in unbelief that, that he was persecuting the church. He was resisting, rejecting Christ and the gospel. Basically, he's saying, look, I, I, I was like the very Jews that, that, that I've been speaking about who are, are hardened and rejected, rejecting Christ, and yet Christ came to me, came to me, Saul, on the Damascus road, and he saved my life. It's as if Paul is saying, I, I don't want to add too much that uh, maybe, but, but it's as if he's saying there, there's not just one, the, the, the proof is there's not just one true Jew who has come to Christ himself, but, but he's, I think he's, he may be alluding to the fact that if God can bring such a, a hard-hearted, uh, hostile, violent, and hardened Jew as, as me, as Paul, into his people, then who can God not save? Just as Paul's hardened state was not the end of his story, so it may not be for some of them, you see. Perhaps some of you have had similar thoughts when you were witnessing to or praying for a lost friend or a lost family member, when you thought to yourself as you were praying, you know, if God can save me, surely he can save them, right? If you've broken into my life, God, when, when I was going a, a different direction, you can break into theirs. It's a wonderful truth. If God can transform a persecutor of the church into an apostle of the church, he can save anyone, right? He can do anything. And, and so we shouldn't give up on people that are hard-hearted, church. You should not write them off. You, you should keep praying 
You should keep looking for opportunities to share the gospel for this very reason. Paul is, is giving us assurance from his own life and testimony here. And, and, and more to the point here, he's given us his own life and testimony, verse 2 says, to show us that God has not rejected his people. He doesn't just give us a personal testimony, though. He also gives us a doctrinal reason. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. This is... This is, a, I, this is a, a theology that we began looking at all the way back in chapter 8 when God predestined and called and justified and glorified. And, and to those in chapter 9, he says God has chosen to show mercy too. And, and you, you remember, this was never a promise to the entire nation of Israel. God did not promise to save all of them. Remember chapter 9, verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not everybody who is a physical descendant of Abraham are children of the promised. And he gave us examples. It was Isaac that was the child of the promise, not Ishmael. It was Jacob, but not Esau. And it was not based on any quality or any work that they did because they were sinners, but because of the gracious choice and foreknowledge of God, he told us. But Paul doesn't want us to conclude from all of these weighty things that he has said to us about the Jews in these chapters, that they have rejected Christ and despised the gospel, that God has rejected them all totally. That's not been the truth. It's not the truth, and it's not going to be the truth in the future. God has a people for himself, and he, he's not left this to chance. And Paul says, look, I'm exhibit A, <laughs> and... Uh, but not just Paul. Notice secondly what he says. God chose and preserved a remnant. He says in verse 2, Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am, am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him, Paul says? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Remnant is a, it's not a common word. It, it, it means a, a, maybe a small or a leftover part of something. That, that, that is larger, about the only use I could think of, and maybe some of you others could think of some others, but, but I could think of just carpet. I know Tina and I have went to a carpet place before, and we were looking for a, you know, some kind of an area rug or something, and, and we asked, do they have any remnants? That is, do you have any leftover pieces that maybe you've thrown over in the corner you'd like to sell for a nice discounted price? Amen. That's only the remnant. Um, in, in the Bible, though, it, it's, it's predominantly used in the Old Testament. Uh, used like 62 times, and it's always concerning the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, it's only, only used three times, I believe, and, and two of those in Romans 9, 27, and then Romans 11. So right here in our section of, of Scripture, our verse, Romans eleven five. 5. And Paul goes all the way back to the Old Testament to teach us about it, to the days of Elijah. That's what I mentioned at the beginning of the service, 1 Kings 18 and 19. It is a wonderful Sunday afternoon read. And uh, so if you're looking for something this afternoon, it's a great little read. First Kings 18, Elijah is on Mount Carmel, 
And uh, he's, he's one prophet of God, and he's facing down 450 prophets of Baal, and Elijah builds an altar, and the prophets of Baal build an altar, and each of them cry out to God to provide the fire. That was the plan, and whichever God provides the fire, that's who we'll know is the true God. And in dramatic fashion, you remember this where God sends fire from heaven, doesn't he? comes down and consumes not only Elijah's sacrifice, the bull that he'd sacrificed, but actually the fire consumed the entire altar, all of the wood, all of the stones, all of the soil, all of the water that he had poured on it. The fire took care of all of it. It was an amazing victory. And you remember that Elijah had the 450 prophets of Baal put to death as a result of that. It was a great victory. But, but you remember when news reached King Ahab and his wife, Queen Jezebel, um, who was more wicked than him, she put a death notice out on Elijah's life. And in chapter 19, Elijah, perhaps being emotionally, mentally, physically drained from all of this, he flees into the wilderness. He wants to die. When God confronts him and says, what are you doing here, What are you doing? Paul paraphrases Elijah's response there in verse 3. He says, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. And then Paul says here to Romans, he says, do you remember what God said to him in reply? Verse 4. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I appreciated the, the song of uh, one accord this morning, I am not alone. Here, Elijah, he says, I'm all alone. I'm the last believer on the earth. There's no one else beside me. And what does God tell him? Elijah, I've got 7,000 people who've not bowed the knee to Baal. And then verse 5, Paul applies it to now. He says, so too at the present time there are A remnant chosen by grace. Just as so many Israelites, um, the majority, were rejecting Jesus, Paul says there are some who are not. There are some. It's interesting, I hadn't realized, made the connection here, but in Acts chapter 21, but when Paul, on his missionary journeys, he, he comes back to Jerusalem in Acts 21. And uh, you have him there, a brief conversation with James, who was the the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And Paul is telling him all the things that have gone on on his trips and all the work that God is doing among the Gentiles. And and it seems like James is encouraging Paul there. You can read Acts 21, verse 20 or so. But when James and the elders of the church heard it, here's how Luke records it. He says, when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, said to Paul, you see, brother... How many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? It's an odd comment. It's because Paul's talking about all the Gentiles that have been saved. He's telling about his trips. And you get the sense that maybe he was lamenting a little bit that he'd been to the synagogue so many times in these cities and the Jews and his own kinsmen had not come to Christ. And when he comes back to Jerusalem, it's as if James says to him, that's great, God's been doing a great work, but let me tell you, there are thousands among the Jews who are believing too. 
That must have been so encouraging for Paul. In spite of so many rejecting the gospel, rejecting Christ, thousands who were responding, God was keeping for himself a remnant, a remnant of people. Notice that, notice at the end of verse 5, this is a remnant that Paul adds that phrase, chosen by grace. Chosen by grace. Why, why does he say that? Why does he keep bringing this doctrine up? What's the implication that he wants us to see? This is a remnant chosen by grace. He, he's not in any way, I think, denying that these people have to come to Christ in faith and repentance Just as he explained in Romans chapter 10, if an Israelite is to be saved, he must be saved by exactly the same grace through faith as anyone is saved. There's not two different ways. He's already said that. But what Paul, I think, is emphasizing, chosen by grace there, he's saying that God does not provide one way of salvation for the Israelite and present another way for the different, for the Gentiles. There's only one way of salvation in the Bible, and it's by grace through faith. Amen? But here... In this verse, verse 5, chosen by grace, Paul is emphasizing once again the sovereign side of that equation once more. Why, why does he do that? He, he's emphasizing that. I, I think he's, he's, he's reminding himself and his, his hearers again that, that this is all a part of God's plan, that God is not sitting up in heaven and he's saying, I, I really hope that I have a remnant I really, I really hope that some of those Jews are going to be, be saved. And I don't mean to be blunt here, but God is not an Arminian theologian. He's not sitting in heaven wishing that some people would get saved so that there's going to be a remnant. Paul says, no, he has chosen a remnant by his grace, by his grace. And he does so to demonstrate to the world that this is a God who keeps his word to his people. That's good news, church. He's faithful today. Do you you see this? It's such good news for us. We look around at the landscape today. We might even start to question with the darkness that's coming in on our world. We might say, wow, there's not very many of us Christians in this world. Look at how dark, look at how how terrible things are becoming. We might be tempted. We might feel alone as Elijah did. We might be discouraged at the, the growing rejection of Christ today all around us. We might even occasionally feel like that leftover piece of carpet thrown over to the side, the remnant, the fragment in the store. But here's what we know. We know that the church of Jesus Christ will never be erased from this earth. There may be individual churches that fall or denominations that that fracture and fall, but God promises he will preserve a remnant in every generation. And it's likely larger than we think it is today. We'll never be asked to stand alone in this world that is perishing because God always has a people who cannot fail. A people that have been chosen by grace, not by their flimsy works, as Paul says, verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. We are held by His grace, church. We belong to him. 
He will hold us fast. Jesus prayed in the upper room before his cross. John chapter 17, verses 9 and 12. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. But for those you've given me. For they are yours. I've guarded them, verse 12. And not one of them has been lost. Except the son of destruction, speaking of Judas. That the scripture might be fulfilled. You see what Paul is saying? Has God rejected his people? By no means has he rejected his people. Paul says, look, I'm exhibit A, but I want you to know God has chosen and preserved a remnant of people for himself. Just as he told Elijah, I've got 7,000. You don't even know about Elijah. The third thing he says, more difficult, is that God hardened the rest of Israel. Verse 7, what then, Paul asked, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, but he clarifies, the elect obtained it, but the rest, but the rest were hardened. Israel failed to obtain the righteousness or salvation, we might say. They failed to obtain the salvation they were seeking. Why? He's already told us this. Because they didn't seek it as though it were by grace. They sought it as though it were by works. He says the elect, those chosen by God, the remnant, they obtained it by faith. But the rest, he says here, the rest of the Israelites, the rest of them were hardened. means that they were made obstinate or stubborn toward Christ and the gospel. They were hardened, incapable of responding to the gospel. Paul once again points to the scriptures for this. He cites uh, Isaiah 29.10 for just a phrase and then Deuteronomy 29.10 Verses 2 through 4 there in verse 8. He says, as it is written, verse 8, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And again, we should not conclude here that God is somehow unfair in doing this. God does not harden anyone who has not first hardened themselves. And we've seen that. This is a, a, a just or what theologians come, sometimes call a judicial hardening of them. A punishment for their proud hearts that are rejecting the message of the gospel. That becomes clear. Verses 9 and 10. David cites Psalm 69, 22 and 23 there. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and a retribution for them, that their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. 
Once again, Paul is saying to us that this hardening that's happening here in that present time of unbelief and rejection of the gospel that they're struggling with, that he's dealing with, is not new. It's not unexpected. It was something that went all the way back to the Old Testament, promised of God. It was taught and continues on, Paul says, down to this very day, verse 8. And the the picture here in these verses is is so telling, isn't it? What, What is causing this hardening? What's causing this? Paul says that it's because that they have had grace offered to them. Which is remarkable, isn't it? This picture of a table here that has become a snare or a stumbling block. I don't think any of us would think that a table is a snare or a stumbling block. That's not the first place where we would go. It's, a, table is a, place of, a table is a place of grace. It's a table of a table you think of, of where plenty is discovered. Come sit at the table and, and eat, be filled, be full. You think of Psalm 23, 5, and the promise there in that wonderful psalm that you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The the psalmist is giving testimony there, a a metaphor for God's gracious provision to him, even in the presence of his enemies. God's caring for him. Reminds me of 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 Isaiah 55 and the invitation that God gives there to, to his people um, he, he said to, to come into his grace. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and, and milk without money and without price. It, it's this invitation. Come and eat that your soul may live because it's a table of grace, not a table of works. You don't have any money. Come. But but what's the problem here? Well, he's told us. They don't want to come. Ferguson puts it so well, at the end of the day, it's not simply the law and its accusations that harden the human heart. It's the gospel that hardens the heart. The gospel. God's gracious gospel both saves and it hardens. It's what some have called God's strange work. That it's the very gospel of grace in Jesus Christ that promises free and full salvation, riches spread on God's table, God's plentiful supply, his invitation, but sinful men and women like us will have nothing to do with that table. And when a sinner hardens his heart like that, God hardens them. Jesus spoke of this very thing, Matthew 13. Um, turn, turn there in your Bibles with me to Matthew. I, I know your fingers don't get a lot of exercise. So Matthew 13 for just a moment. And uh, we'll, we'll try to wrap, wrap this up. Jesus spoke of this very thing, I think, in Matthew 13. Um, he, he's speaking. This is the day when he started speaking in parables to the Jewish religious leaders who were rejecting him. So he starts to speak in parables. Matthew 13, look at verse 10. 
Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, To you, to you disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. To them, to the Jews, the nation of Israel, these religious teachers, to them it's not been given. Verse 12. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but, you, but never perceive. The you there, again, is Israel. You will keep on hearing, but not understand. You will see, but not perceive. And here's why, verse 15, Jesus says, For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. You see, it's their unwillingness to believe that, to believe that, that God hardened them. Look what it says, one more verse, verse 16 but he tells the disciples, he says, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Blessed are you. Church, do you understand what a blessing it is to have eyes to see and ears to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? That you see, that you hear and understand, that you see what others do not see. And it, make no mistake about this, it's not because you are smarter than everybody else. It's not because you, you, you are brighter or that you've worked for it. You're so much better morally than everybody else. It's not that you've merited this salvation. It is by His grace alone that you see. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind but now I see why because of amazing grace amazing grace there are no commands in, in uh, here in Romans 11 for us to do you notice that right it's like there's nothing he tells us to do he's just telling us what he wants us to know but there's certainly some things that we need to respond to isn't it but first, I hope that you're hearing this, and you're hearing in this an invitation to come into God's grace today. That if God can save someone as hard-hearted as Paul was, that He can save you. And that even today, He set a table before you. Right now, right here. And he's inviting you to come in to his salvation, into his love, to come to the table. You cannot work for this. You cannot earn it. You cannot do this on your own. Jesus Christ has done it all for you. He has paid it all. You can only receive it by faith. By faith. 
We serve a God who opens blind eyes and who awakens those in spiritual stupors. Aren't you thankful for that today? Amen? He can do that, and He does do that. He, we serve a God whose grace is greater than our sins. And that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved, Paul says. But each person is accountable for his or her response to that offer. What will you do today with that? I think another faithful response this morning is hinted at again in the story of Elijah. Whether in pride or despair, we, we don't know, but his lament there where he says, uh, I alone am left. I alone am, am left. It, it, it implies... You understand what, he, what Elijah was applying, what he said that, God, you've not been faithful. Doriani puts it like this, whether he spoke in self-pity or pride, Elijah erred. And we err too when we tell ourselves that God is no longer at work in us or, the, or in the world. Church, don't be delusioned by all that you think that you're seeing around you, because God has promised always to keep a remnant chosen by His grace. And therefore, we do not lose heart. Our God has already won, church. Amen? He's already won. Boyce put it like this, the culture may indeed be rushing down a slippery slope to damnation. But as His remnant, nevertheless... And this remnant has not bowed its knee to the bale of sex and possessions. There are devout people who are living for God and trying to do the right thing, often in what are terrible circumstances. And we should be encouraged by this. And we should encourage one another in this. Be faithful. In fact, I encourage you to say that to someone today before you leave the building. Just say, brother, sister, be faithful. Be faithful this week. You're not alone. Resist your sin. Resist it. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. Be, be faithful in this. Know that you're, you're a part of God's people. You're a part of the bride of Jesus Christ. And He promises to hold us fast, even in these difficult and dark times in which we live. Let's commit ourselves to Him because He's been faithful to us. Amen. Lord, thank You for these words today and we pray that, Lord, by them and through them You would encourage us now. We pray especially for those who may be here and who've been thinking about this gospel and have yet to respond. Lord, and in Your power... <laughs> That they might have hearing and eyes to see today the glorious truth of who you are, what you've done for them, that you would save them. And so, Lord, we entrust them and, and uh, ask, Lord, that you would work as only you can. And, Lord, help us. Keep, keep working in us, Lord. Help us to be encouraged and not discouraged. Help us to know that we're not alone. Help us to be faithful. 
Help us to encourage one another today to be faithful. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.